You are entering the take-up, a place to gather when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and as always, I'm here with my co-host and the managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hi, hi, Andrew. Josh, Josh, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Can I come in? Yeah. Okay. Oh, God. (laughs) Whatever. All right. Today, we are processing Let the Right One In. That is Andrew's pick for the queer coding series. People are going to turn this podcast off right then. (laughs) First, we're going to talk now showing after Let the Right One In, we're going to have one more thing. Uh, um, are you a fan of the original Exorcist? Yeah, it's probably kind of another statement. I'm actually giving a talk later this month at the High Point about it for its, okay. golden, for its golden anniversary series thing. With yeah, I totally set you up for that yeah. because I knew that. And yeah. So needless to say, it's, a, it's probably one of the horror films I've seen the most times. It's, it's that, The Shining, or Poltergeist, I think. Yeah, you saying that reminded me that I have a golden anniversary, October 15th. That's Orson Welles' F for Fake. Oh, exciting. That's an exciting one to do. I'm so excited. I I don't think I'm smart enough to talk about it. But anyway, I have kind of waffled on it my life, during my life. The original, the original. The original. And I don't really remember why, but I think the last time I watched it, I was very appreciative of it. I think it is probably very great. Time for that, I don't know. I think maybe I read some things is kind of phony about it and specifically about like the backstory. And the, I don't, you know how I am with anything that deals with religion because I'm like, oh, that shit's bullshit. So I don't yeah, care. I think that's, and this is, this could be a preview for my talk on it later this month. But like, I think for me, what sells that film and its power is that I'm an atheist who doesn't believe in any of this. And yeah. for me, for the two hours that I watched that film, I am 100% in the world space, in the in the headspace, in the worldview of that deeply Catholic, Catholic view of the world. And I buy it 100% what, for the duration of that film. So this is what makes me so exhausted about David Gordon Green's yeah requel reboot whatever exorcist legacy legacy believer yes so exorcist 2 is like this very psychedelic psychic odyssey with richard burton you know being his alcoholic priest self no he's not a priest he's he's a priest is he a priest or scientist i don't remember but it's like is john borman doing john borman things Absolutely almost, nuts. Almost John Borman doing Ken, like a Ken Russell. Yeah, like Ken Russell going that far. Exorcist 3, fucking dope. That's Which like I a love, serial. Yeah. That's love. a serial killer movie, but also a, a demonic possession movie. Like, it is mm-hmm. so cool. The director's cut. I've never seen, like, the theatrical cut. Mm. Then Paul Schrader tries to make one. Gets it taken away. Rennie Harling comes in, makes a pretty kind of traditional prequel thing. Paul Schrader's film is a Paul Schrader film. Uh, take it or leave it. <laughs> anyway, this one owes so much to the original. Mm-hmm. Minus any originality, any oh, creative choices, any ideas. It has a few ideas. Spoilers. It's not specific to Catholicism. They're also bringing in like indigenous Haitian quote unquote voodoo. 
They're also bringing in Southern Baptists. In fact, the exorcism and all it is now instead of one girl, two girls. Mm. Wow. Just take it and double it. (laughs) Such an executive note, right? What if we had two girls possessed by the devil? So Liz Purcell, the great queer film historian, you know about Jim Cameron pitching aliens, right? Yeah. He just walks up to a board that says the word alien, and then he just draws a dollar sign. Yeah. Aliens. <laughs> this is exorcists. Anyway. I'm already tired. I haven't even seen it yet. I'm already tired. David Gordon Green, who is someone who, before he, you know, went on the Pineapple Express, was indie filmmaker, making films about really small communities, often about privileged communities, and at least no matter what you think of those and they were to me often very successful i mean thinking about all the real girls george washington and undertow which i think is a really underrated thriller but they all had like sense of character sense of community it was very unique it's almost as if he's trying to do that again and in this one it is like some weird facsimile of reality and as you're watching, you're like, this is so boring. When are they going to get possessed? When are they going to do something? By the time they get possessed, it is the every decision is so fucking stupid and devoid of, of any clarity, thought, oh. even like detail. Like everything is just sort of a sketch of an idea. And it seems very cheaply done, very off the cuff. I don't really know what happened here because it seems to me that this is like someone's senior thesis, like spec script. And that's not a compliment. Sorry. I, you know, I went through film school too, film studies. Anyway, Andrew, the, the worst thing I've seen so far this yeah. year. I feel really, really, I feel vindicated for specifically not avoiding it. So, Can I tell you, I'm, I'm going to spoil the very end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Ellen Burstyn ret- returns. Yeah. He's given nothing to do but just deliver all this like portent and very like stupid banal dialogue about evil. Makes a decision um, to go with this father whose daughter is possessed to visit the other girl and they let her wander off and go see her by herself and of course the things like hey bitch it's pazuzu again i'm back and ellen burston's like cast cast out this damnation blah 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 immediately gets her eyes poked out with a cross it's like what are we doing why is someone not watching the 90 year old woman trying to perform (laughs) an exorcist by herself Anyway, so she's Ellen Burson for most of the film is just lying in a bed with like medical gauze over her eyes, saying the stupidest dialogue. And the entire time she's talking about missing her daughter. Like there's so much evil in the world, but really, I just miss my daughter. Guess what the final shot of this film is? Uh, is it something about Reagan? It is Ellen Burson, hospital, blind sunshine beaming through the windows and a hand reaches out to her and Mm -hmm. says mother it's linda blair Mm -hmm. trying to make amends 
Really? It, I said, oh my fucking God. That's their, that's their like Marvel moment, right? It, like it, the, that's have... exactly what it felt like. <laughs> anyway. yeah, Teasing the next really... Doctor Strange villain or something. <laughs> Am I making it sound appropriately stupid? Like it, really it sounds dumb. Me. It sounds dumb. It really got me. And I'm not I was giving so, you all of it. I mean, I wasn't inclined to like it. I was so put off by the, by the Halloween remake in 2018, was it? That I haven't seen any of the other ones. I've, I have, I, I have not only I have not only avoided them, but I re- I spoiled myself and read the plot summary to to confirm my suspicions that they were bad. I and gotta they tell are, you, and they're bad. That third one, whatever you have to say about David Gordon Green and his you know rebooting all this horror and whatever, that third one has a lot of crazy shit going on in it to where I mean, it is entertaining. It sounds At crazy. Least something's happening. It sounds At least crazy. Something's there were choices were made, is what I understand. Right, exactly. Like make a choice, do something, David Gordon Green. <sighs> okay, all right. You got good movies. What is yeah. Kitty Green up to? Is this thing good? I have a couple. Yeah, I have a couple good movies. So Kitty Green, the Australian documentarian who made a magnificent film a couple years ago called The Assistant with Julia Garner. It's a sort of crypto Harvey Weinstein movie about his sort of one of his secretaries or personal assistants not turning that movie about a man but i think about it matthew mcfadgen in oh, that yeah. movie so much he's like great five one scene, scene one scene one another great one scene wonder so good so she's returning like reuniting with julia garner making a fictional narrative narrative film but it is inspired by a documentary not made by green from a few years ago about Finnish backpackers who are working, sort of doing work for short-term work for pay in a bar in the middle of nowhere in the Australian outback. And that's sort of the premise of this film. We have two Americans played by Garner and the great Jessica Henwick who have sort of run out of money. They're they're sort of expats sort of bouncing around Australia. They've run out of money, so they take whatever job they can get. And the job that they've been assigned is to go to this town. Town is maybe being generous. It's a like spot on the map in the middle of the Australian outback and 10 bar at this very rough and this very rough mining community in the middle of nowhere. And green sort of approaches it almost like a thriller or like a horror film that we have these two, like 20 something pretty 20 something women who are sort of on their own. They have no, we don't get any real backstory, but we get the impression they have no support network. There's no one they can call. There's no family. There's no other friends. It's just them alone in the middle of nowhere um, with these, guys who not only haven't heard of me too like would laugh at it and throw a drink in its face it's a terrifying film in some ways hugo weaving looking alarmingly grizzled and rough around the edges playing sort of the the perpetually drunken bar owner who is maybe the nicest guy he's he's a drunk raging maniac and he's maybe the least dangerous person in this town it's it's a very difficult film to watch in some respects but very good very tense. I sort of view it as the flip side of Wake and Fright. It has sort of that same vibe of we're in the middle of nowhere and things are becoming dissolute and the nights are blending into days and the girls I especially. I love that. Yeah, um, the girls. did a talk on that movie not too long, Wake and Fright. Yeah, a couple years ago I did, a, ago. I did a golden anniversary thing about it, which I, it's a film I love. Jessica Hemwick's character lives sort of embraces the degenerate disillusionment of it all and like just day drinking all day long and all night and sort of 
isn't as put off by the attention of all these creepy guys as Garner's character. And it becomes like, obviously there are like two or three guys that become the obvious troublemakers that are going to be a problem that the women have to deal with. And it, you can tell that green is sort of refining uh, the way that the assistant works. It's almost sort of claustrophobic and this has a similar vibe, but it's claustrophobic from the sense of exposure. You know, they're, they're on this vast dry desert plain. They're in this building where they're, they're often the only ones behind the bar as these like rowdy men are harassing them and throwing jokes at them and screaming at them and making demands and fireworks are going off and people are throwing chairs in the bar and it's it's just a mess. So this is playing in theaters now. And yeah, I like it a lot. I don't think it's quite the like modern mini masterpiece that the assistant is just because the assistant is such a beautifully self-contained little idea of a movie that's perfectly executed this is a bit more sprawling but if you have the stomach for watching a couple of women navigate a horrible situation and maybe come out the other end then I, it's, it's not i don't want to oversell the horror this isn't wolf creek or anything it's it's a realistic it's grounded well, in god re- yeah it's, I, it's grounded in realism i think i can handle another wolf creek it's not grounded in horror idioms but it is grounded in a in a horror like a dread a tone yeah like a a feeling and the sick feeling in the pit of your stomach and you're just you're sort of trained to watch the men the way the men move around the room with your provisional vision just the way that garner's character is does well what's that played at what sundance earlier this year but also there was fair play that played at sundance another sort of gender genre thriller i haven't seen it yet but it's available for anyone with a netflix subscription to watch right now right yeah, this is a debut feature from Chloe Dumont. And it made, like you said, it made a big, I think it was one of the more successful films out of Sundance this year. It has a theatrical distribution. I think it's playing in a few places, but a couple weeks ago it opened. But right now, as of this Friday, it's also playing on Netflix. So anybody can watch it. The way I describe this movie is it's Michael Crichton's Disclosure, but good. That's a you must remember this. <laughs> yeah. So the premise is Phoebe. Dinover, Dinover from Bridgerton, I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and Alden Ehrenreich from Hail Caesar and Solo Star Wars Story are this couple who work at a hedge fund on Wall Street. And they, they're sort of a, a power couple, both coming up in the ranks of this hedge fund together, ruthless finance, high finance world. Nobody at the office knows they're in a relationship. They're kind of keeping it secret because they're both analysts on the floor. And premise of the movie, sort of the hook of the movie, is that Alden's character, Luke, thinks that he's going to be promoted. And they sort of get excited about the idea of him moving up the ranks of the company and her sort of following him along eventually. That he, He'll be in a position to sort of help her career too. And of course, the script gets flipped. It turns out that Luke is not being promoted. Her character, Emily, is being promoted. And the entire like everything about this film is the fallout from that revelation like the (laughs) next the next 90 minutes are how does this relationship and everything about the situation disintegrate or implode really because of this upending of expectations that rubs luke's sort of masculinity the wrong way the way that Emily starts to sort of change as a person as she enters this very alpha male world and sort of tries to rise to the occasion and be the person that she thinks she needs to be to succeed in this very cutthroat 16 hours a day 
more money than God type business. Um, it's fascinating, but difficult watch. Very, very much feels like a, again, like you're watching a, a horror film or like really like you're watching a slow motion train wreck. It's like, there's nothing subtle or are unpredictable about this film from the minute we get the revelation that she's gotten the promotion and he hasn't we can see the trajectory of how this drama is going to go but if like me you love a good like well-executed horrible acidic melodrama and characters like being really terrible to each other and things disintegrating then it, it's definitely for you I, I like it a lot it i think there's been a lot of controversy about the last 10 minutes of it because it goes in some very unpredictable maybe the only part that's unpredictable is like the last 10 minutes i i like the ending but i can i can see why some people might might have sort of raised objections to it yeah i'm seeing quite a bit on a bit of discourse on the ending online i i, I plan on watching it soon hey did you did you see sanctuary from this year with margaret Qualley and no it's on my watch sort of, yeah it's on my know, watch list yeah it, it, i mean it sort of recalls a bit like that because you know he's very involved in business and she's got one up over him but that's like a one setting two-hander where they're playing sexy games maybe. yeah i get the impression that's more more of an erotic thriller i've seen some people describe fair play as an erotic thriller which doesn't seem accurate to me at all it, it is not sort of a 90s direct video throwback in by any means it feels more like a child of like our modern prestige drama era the way i've been describing is it is this is like billions, but without any of the financial minutia. It's the interpersonal story that's sort of weaving that we don't see and get to see that often in billions that weaves between the lines of it. And sort of, it almost feels like we're getting the reverse shot of, of a little mel a little horrible caustic melodrama that we wouldn't otherwise see playing out between these two people. So Very yeah, good. great, great and debut. That's on Netflix and Netflix. available in, in some theaters somewhere. Yeah. Great debut from Chloe DeMont. All right. Well, hey, why don't we get into the next bit about Queer Coded? It's our series about what it sounds like. Queer Coded Horror. You see, if you look at the title in the episode. Don't explain it. it. Don't explain sense. it. Okay, I won't explain it. But yeah, we are covering Queer Coded Horror films in celebration of queers and... Spooky season. Don't call it which season. is the time the time Andrew, let me inform you. Mm. This is our favorite time of the year. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Let's let the right one in. said that yeah. if you rewind 30 seconds you're <laughs> going to hear me say the thing i can't believe i said maybe dear listeners you can't believe it anyway let the right one in last episode we covered hush hush sweet charlotte a film my little queer heart loved <laughs> as a baby but now we're moving up into more contemporary times talking about i'd say pretty instant classic would you agree that was its reputation at the time it's like this is one of the great ones of this genre, one of the films that becomes representative of like that country, the the Scandinavian area. I think this 
might be a big one for us. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Do people still like this movie? Am I making this up? No, I mean, I like it, obviously, because I picked it. This might be of the films that I've picked, whether sight unseen or because I liked them, this might be my pick that is also my like in my personal canon the most. Okay. I love I yeah, love this yeah, yeah. film. I yeah, I love it too. I we'll, we'll get into it, but my memory of it was a little bit different. Even though watching it, I could instantly recall like certain shots that were mm. very indelible. And I I own this, but for some reason, just haven't watched it in years and years and years. And I think I, I think we'll get into this too. Tomas Alfredson's uh, reputation has quite a bit soured yeah. even though he made one other movie that i unabashedly love too yeah and i'm not talking the snowman <laughs> yeah let the right one in so andrew yeah well, was ask well, well, well why this one you said it's in your personal canon but i seem to recall you had a list of like 20 things you were thinking about but it seemed yeah. like you always kind of wanted to go with this yeah, I had a I had a long I had a, sh- I had a short short list quote unquote short list of films to select for this and any one of them I feel like I could have talked about and I think we would have had a good time talking about. And this is one I was you know I was sure that I could talk for an hour extemporaneously about how much I loved it and everything that it does well, and I feel like because it's an adaptation of a book and it was also remade in America that gives us some other avenues to discuss as well. But yeah, just as a voice, yeah, as okay. we found out last night, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. But as a film, sort of qua film, I just think it's a it's an excellent piece of work. It's I do think it sort of it arrived and became an instant part of the vampire canon, and it it offers us. I don't want to say that it's completely unique because vampire the vampire subgenre is so broad and deep that pretty much every vampire movie has already been made. But it did feel very sort of original at the time, a very sort of unique vision of vampirism, a unique way to change the perspective on vampirism interesting ways to use vampirism as an allegory or a metaphor as we'll talk about but yeah i just i love this film unabashedly i haven't actually seen it in a while i I watched it when in theaters back in 2008 i watched it again at least one more time on disc and then i just now revisited it so it's i've only seen it three times but re-watching it last week i was just like yeah that's why i love this movie Yeah, yeah, yeah me too so let me let me tell you about my journey rewatching it this time yeah. i decided because we both were talking about rewatching let me in mm-hmm. so this is one of those films that became sort of so popular on its own level that it was critically appreciated it did receive some moderate awards attention globally but it it was hailed as sort of an instant classic but it's a swedish film mm-hmm. so you're talking about subtitles and let me tell you that 15 years ago, that was very different. Even five years ago, it was very different from everyone turning their subtitles on with their laptops. So like the way we're watching movies now is very different. And we have a Parasite win for Best Picture. I mean, I think that, right. that, changed, that changed things a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, something like Squid Game is as close as we get to monoculture these days. <laughs> yeah. So So it's very different that everyone's consuming content globally now. And it's reductive for me to say that it wasn't like this before, but it but it really was quite a barrier and still is for some people. Matt Reeves, a director had been around for a while, but had just made Cloverfield, was attached to direct an American remake. 
And that ended up coming out in 2010, starring Chloe Grace Moretz and Cody Smith McPhee mm-hmm. and Richard Jenkins, too, who's just really excellent at it. Lias Cotillas. It's got a great cast, actually. Yeah. And for that sort of Atlantic journey, typically those don't go over well. It's it it's always like, why? Is this thing necessary? Like, you can't watch a movie with subtitles. Like, why are you just copying this thing? But the film did receive good reviews and didn't necessarily get the same sort of denigration from critics that these, you know, English language remakes of foreign language films typically get. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is all lead up to say, I wanted to see what would happen given time and me having distance from source material or at least the basic narrative arc of this and even maybe the aesthetics of it. What would happen if I did Let Me In first? Oh, interesting. So I watched Let Me In first and was like, this is this is a good movie. Like, I I see where some things might be at a disadvantage. There's some choices that I kind of remember from the original, but I was trying to not compare and give Let Me In the advantage. Matt Reeves is a sort of Spielberg acolyte. I think it's fair to call him that, but I think he's probably one of the better ones, even though I don't know that he's made a great film. There are people who love the Batman, not one of them. He has made a great film. It's called Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Ah, I'm sorry. That's a good movie. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, and he wrote the last one, but didn't direct two, two and three. He wrote two and th- he wrote and directed two and three, and they're both very excellent. Okay, great. So then let's pop in, let the right one in. Mm-hmm. Almost instantly, I'm like, that let me in's a piece of shit. <laughs> sorry. I'm like, why did they choose to do that? Why did they choose to do that? But ultimately, this one, this one casts a spell mm-hmm. that is so enchanting in considering what it is and the content at hand and how really incredibly violent it is. And, and it's not necessarily blood drenched. It's just kind of fucking gross. Yeah, a guy pours acid on his own face. I mean, that's... It's so tender. Like, it it feels like it it could at some point crumble apart if Alfredson weren't such a a solid, steady director who's Mm. taking you on what feels like this incredible queer fairy tale. Yeah, and I think that... Maybe that's like the part that really hooked me initially. I think I'm a, I'm a I'm a cynical guy, so when a film can sort of touch something buried, long buried, and I think when I think one of the things that this film does really well is create what I would call like the first crush sensation. Oh my god! It it and it uh, and it, uh, it evokes yes. the feeling, and even as, as goofy as this film is with the crazy CGI cats and the the horrifying it is with some really depraved violence I can't for me the cats this early for me the part that really like i guess hooked me and it isn't the only thing i like about the film but it's the part that sort of got its hook into my heart and tugged it tugged it and made me go i love this horrible violent vampire film is that sensation that ache 
of the first crush and how powerful it feels and how much it can sort of realign your world and how, you know, you can be a dumb shit 13 year old and think that you're head over heels with somebody. And maybe, maybe you're not really, and you probably aren't really, but just the sensation is intense. And the, the, the way that this film sort of makes that, I mean, there's sort of preteen sexuality stuff in there, but this is mostly a chaste romance between Ely and Oscar. And there's something very sweet and pure about it. As horrifying as everything it is that's happening around it, that just feels true to me. Yeah. I can't put it any better than that. It feels this movie feels true about what it's like to be infatuated with somebody at that age. Being infatuated with somebody at 18 or 28 feels different, but something about being infatuated at 13 feels a certain way. And for that person to be sort of the only one. Yeah. The because... feeling of outsider, of of seeing yourself seen and yeah. and finding an out another outsider who you can connect with is very intense. That's one level that that makes it very queer is these two finding each other and they really have no other connections to the outside world. The outside world is constantly rebuffing them. I think Ely probably has more of a connection, but they have this relationship with this father figure mm -hmm. or their father. Like this one doesn't make that relationship, doesn't call it out explicitly. The I don't want to compare these two but it it really does illuminate small choices, small choices filmmakers make that make a whole very different. And Let Me In, I still think Let Me In is a good movie, but Let the Right One In makes all the right decisions, the right moments. One I'll call out is The Acid. It's an accident in Let Me In. Mm -hmm. It's purposeful and let the right one in, right? Yeah. So it, it it says so much more about that character, but also a creator's worldview to do something like that. The, the transness is played down. I mean, it's there, but this character in the American one is given a very specifically coded as, as a female presenting, mm -hmm. um, as a female presentation. Mm -hmm. given the name Abby, and is only explicitly called out about saying the line, I'm not a girl, once, whereas in this one, it's it, it it's both text and subtext. Mm -hmm. uh, but it just seems like Alfredson knows exactly what distance he needs to have from this material. And I mean that kind of quite literally, too in the way he positions his camera often quite a bit far away mm -hmm. until you get to the, the couple in the center of it. Mm -hmm. And then he gets very close and focuses on these incredible performances that yeah. even though one of them is being manipulated in a like filmmaking sense in so many different ways, at any given point, but it is, it barely, it registers subconsciously. Mm -hmm. You don't even notice that the vampire in the story, like the eyes are changing colors. The eyes get bigger and smaller based upon the amount of blood in their system. It's like, 
it's it's just the perfect distance from it and a perfect understanding of what makes this story special. Yeah, I think, and it's a shame that, I mean, I don't know the backstory, but both Kari Handebrand, who plays Oscar, and Lena Leanderson, who play Ely, haven't really been in anything else. They've been in a few other, couple other films. I think maybe they've had some television work, but they've sort of dropped off the map as far as I can tell, even, even in Swedish media. Which is a shame, but we have this. Like, it is a beautiful, yep. it's two beautiful child performances. Again, sort of capturing something very intense, very special that, and again, like, the we 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 could talk back and forth about, I mean, let's get into it. Let's talk about the queer text slash subtext of this film. Because yep. you mentioned that when you first saw it back in 2008, you didn't necessarily think of it as a queer trans film. No, and it, and... I was a much younger person and maybe was just giving this thing a a sort of basic read, but everything we've talked about up until this point is why I loved this movie. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until the thing really started to become a cult film and the ideas of it being a queer film sort of permeated like film Twitter and things Mm -hmm. like that. Did I understand anything to be queer about it? I mean, sure. Any story about the outsider? I mean, that's just kind of definition of queer. Yeah, I mean, you could. There's the there's the there's the remedial level, right? Which is yeah, all vampire films are inherently queer on some level. Yeah, right. Because they're outsiders. That's yeah. it. You know, they're the repressed, <laughs> and and then there's in this film that I didn't recall or expect. And I think this is the way most people watch this. And looking at reviews from the time, whenever English language reviews, it was very rare that anyone brought up any ideas of transness or queerness. I think most people who saw this probably saw Ely say, I'm not a girl, and think they're saying, I'm a vampire. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's true, but Ely is also saying, I am not a girl. They're referring to their gender expression as well. Now, Ely, there's no, Ely does not put any kind of concrete term to their gender expression. And I keep saying they, even though the film kind of gestures towards more female presentation, Mm -hmm. but then you know, reading kind of the backstory in the novel, you, I get different ideas, but just let the right one in. The Thomas Alfredson film, their their gender expression is certainly doesn't seem to be on a binary. And at no point do they say, I'm not a girl, I'm not a boy. I I identify as vampire. <laughs> like at no point no. do they say that. But I, I think, think a lot I- of people wa- watch this and were like, yeah, that's what they mean. I'm I'm not a girl. I'm a vampire. Yeah, I mean, which I think is how it reads and let me in. I way. think that's how I think that's how maybe I read it, but I also feel like I was aware and I went back and read my original 2008 review and I'm like, "Oh, I was the I was a straight film film bro dude and I still had a whole paragraph in there talking about its queerness and He's the, an some, ally, folks. This well, is my ally. I guess what I'm saying is I don't feel like it was hidden. 
but yeah, sure. Certainly, no, I think not at all. people people probably bounced off it. But re- when I rewatched it last week, I said I I I was taking notes as I went. I was like, "There's a particular exchange where Ely crawls into Oscar's bed, mm-hmm. and and Ely says it's a very beautiful little scene. And Ely says, particularly because Alfredson doesn't put them in the same shot, he kind of goes this back and forth between, mm-hmm. and and that reflects the way that Ely has Oscar sort of laying to the side and not looking at them, but. Oscar, Ely says something effective. We can't be, I told you we can't be friends. Oh, actually, I think it begins with Oscar saying, could we go steady? And the way he puts it in the film that just breaks my heart a little bit is he says, do you think I have a chance? And Ely sort of just takes a step back and says, Oscar, I'm not a girl. And he, and Oscar's response is so, is so cute. He goes, oh, really? So anyway, do I think, you think I have a chance? (laughs) Right. Like, and that was the moment, like, I remembered that moment from watching it originally in 2008. But like, when I rewatched it, I'm like, could we just put a flashing neon sign <laughs> that says, yeah. this is very queer. This is very queer. And, you know, around ideas of representation, that is, that is the sort of thing that we're talking about when we talk about queer and trans representation. You know, it's, this film is honest about the hidden world that queer people have to exist in but within it there's a certain hope there's like a light when you find that connection with another and that scene in particular is very beautiful the scene where Ely comes in and is not invited in and that's Mm -hmm. sort of like the still image that you'll always see is what happens to Ely when they're Which not invited in. I love because th- I, th- that's a, actually a great legitimate like vampire world building question. It's like, so if you're not, what happens if somebody pushes right. you through the door? What like, do you do? What happens? I can't remember a film ever showing what happens if a vampire no. walks in uninvited. Well, and the other thing about vampire lore is, and we've seen films do this before, but I love the way it uses light, sunlight, and what happens with that mm-hmm. and the that shot of the, the it's almost takes on like a religious iconography to it the way the flame just goes up and spreads over the ceiling but alfredson's at like such a distance he's beyond the 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 literal fourth wall of that room yeah. and he uses a wide angle lens and has like two people i mean it really does look like a sort of like not like religious renaissance painting or whatever with two people situated at the side and this great like burst of flames in the middle mm-hmm. it's so it's like it's gorgeous but it also makes logistical sense and probably most importantly it makes like emotional sense it makes movie sense too it, and it also makes movie sense yeah, so I I guess I you know I don't know what that says about me that I'm a straight dude who loves a queer movie about queer preteen vampires, but again I think part of what makes this film so effective is the way it threads the needle between these various tones or moods. It doesn't feel like a movie that's dissonant, and I think you can imagine a movie and please credit right. I think Reeves threads this needle well. He doesn't do it yes. as well as Elberton, but he does thread this needle the same way in Let Me In, which is. We can have a movie with these sort of tender scenes of preteen uh, infatuation. We can have these sort of fly on the wall scenes of Oscar going about his day at school, dealing with bullies, encountering sort of a much more sort of slice of life picture of Oscar. And I think one thing that 
let the right one in does is it gives us more of that. Like we get Oscar going to his father's house. We get a lot of sort of uh, maybe stick closer to Oscar's viewpoint more often, I think, in let the right one in. But it also has time for sort of hyper violent, gory horror movie shit that, that's designed to freak us out. Ely ripping people's throats out, jumping around like a monkey in the trees and crawling up the wall like a spider and transforming. Like at some points, Ely's visage is like, looks like an old person instead of a, a, a little child. Definitely get... some golem, like Bilbo pulling yeah. a golem face. <laughs> yeah. You know? for, for a moment. Right. We get like, there's some strange stuff about like the sort of middle age neighborhood regulars who are sort of hanging around who end up sort of running afoul of Ely. There's cartoonishly ridiculous stuff like the CGI cats. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So hold on. Cat break. Yeah. The one that's like an orange cat that isn't CGI, that's like an animatronic that bites her on the leg. Yeah. I want that one. That one is cute. It flung me the fuck out of this movie <laughs> when that first CGI cat appeared. I was like, I don't remember this. And it, of course, with distance, like things age. Yeah. 2008, <laughs> 2008 was a rough time for an indie film trying to do computer animated animals. I mean, come on. At the time, did you think that like I didn't remember those cats? at all like that and I, I that had to look very stupid in 2008 too i don't think it looks stupid i think i was sort of struck by the looney tunes ridiculousness of the situation this woman running out of the apartment with 20 cats attached to it her screaming like wild. i mean screaming yeah. like i mean but my what point is say about me that when she falls down the stairs with all those cats laughed. on her i'm like oh the cat is gonna <laughs> but, get crushed my point is that this is a film that's juggling a lot of tones and a lot of different, like, there's a lot of different genres of film contained within this film, contained under this umbrella of vampire film. And I think this, Alfredson's film in particular, I think, again, I think Reeves does it pretty well, but Alfredson's film does a really spectacular job of never giving me whiplash. I never feel like, as we're moving between these different modes, I never feel like, I, oh, this shouldn't have, this should have been cut or this shouldn't have been in there. If I can offer the one thing I think, having watched them back to back, I don't think I wa I've watched them back to back ever until this recent rewatch. And I think Reeves' film maybe does one thing better. And that's the police subplot makes more conceptual sense to me than the neighborhood well, people becoming like obsessed with the vampire girl. Does it? I think so. so. I like it makes that more sense. It makes more sense that Elias Cotillas is in that apartment in the final act than it does that the neighbor is in that apartment in the final act in the original. Does that it, make sense? Yes, it does. But they seem to be living in a much more cloistered community, and it, mm -hmm. and I don't know that it's like like the number of people makes me think that. I think it's the way the mise en scène of Alfredson's film. And there is something to these middle-aged people who seem to have nothing. And all they have is a sort of connection to each other. And when that's ripped apart, there's a, a very interesting corollary between Ely and Oscar and the relationships that these older people have with each other. In particular, the first one that Ely attacks under the bridge and is witnessed by the cat guy and I'm forgetting what the kind of 
central figure who becomes Elias Coteus, kind of takes over a lot of the moves he makes. Is that Harken? Harken? Played by Per Ragnar? No, I think, yeah, Haken. Wait a minute, I thought Haken was the old, was the father. Oh, you're right, you're right. It's Lake. It's Peter Carlberg Lake. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's like the sort of central figure who who provokes Haken, the father figure, in the cafe in an early scene. And I, I just like the kind of corollary between that because it becomes a war between them. To whereas in Let the Right One In, or sorry, see, Let Me In, uh, the Elias Cateus is positioned as the antagonist in the first scene because yeah, it uses that framing that as a framing device. Yeah, one thing I don't like about I'm so so I like the the okay. maybe I like logically I like the idea of the cop being the interloper maybe a little more. Maybe I just want to see a cop get his throat ripped out by a vampire. But but yeah, the the bifurcation in that weird prelude in Reeves's script version of the film, I don't really like either. I, think- I mean, I get why you would want to do that. And I think it's probably a disadvantage to already knowing the story. Like you, you don't make it much of a mystery when people are already familiar with it. So even though I tried to have that, even though I tried to have that experience where uh, I saw Let Me In first, it doesn't work because I already know, okay, well, that's a vampire. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And that was her papa. <laughs> Quote, unquote. So yeah, yeah, it doesn't work as a framing device because there's no mystery for me. I'm curious if it does work for people who are actually watching that for the first time. I don't know. I think it might even be confusing because it's like we're starting in sort of in media risk and then we're going backwards. Yeah, um, and then it's actually I I was thinking, oh, I don't remember it loops that around turning point being the end of the movie because it's not it's not a frame, it's right. just a little flash forward and right. then it's two weeks earlier, and then we continue for some time beyond that. It loops uh, back around, but then yeah. sort of we get the I haven't hesitate to call it the third act because that feels like the climax of the film when we get the the whether it's a, a neighbor or the cop who gets who almost uncovers Ely and gets killed in the apartment um, while Oscar is there. That feels like the climax. And then we have this sort of, Ely's like, well, I have to go away now because it's, yeah, I've killed too many people. It's, 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 it's going to get out. And that's but what we makes get... the end of the movie so shocking. And like, it, it fills you with this sense of, yeah, of requisite. It's, it's blood filling a pool. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to keep comparing them, but it's so easy to do when you have this thing that shows you why the other thing is so much more successful. And again, let me in a good movie, whatever. Um, but let the right one in. What the way that unfolds is just a little bit different. Reeves does more coverage and presents above the water that Abby in that film has arrived and chaos happens. And then you go back under the water and chaos starts. Alfredson's so much more purposeful about it. In my head, I remembered the entire thing as a wonder as Oscar's head being under the water the entire time. And then you see feet and blood, right? (laughs) It's not that you're seeing the, the bullies 
holding him under mm-hmm. saying, you know, stop, stop, let's let him up, let him up. And then you do sit there for, I don't know, it can't be even like 10 to 15 seconds, just holding his breath underwater and his hand is still down there. But by not showing us that Ely has arrived, that moment when you see those feet just zoom across that pool <laughs> into the background and a head fall and then finally the hand come up and just a bit of blood coming down your heart swells <laughs> yeah exactly your heart swells and you don't expect there to be another chapter to these to the story of these two i did well well i feel like once we're in that i don't know what you to call it it's not an epilogue it's like a coda or something it's, it doesn't feel like yeah, a proper it feels structurally like a coda yeah once we're in that i think like once we spent like a couple minutes following oscar and knowing that the bullies are up to something my head was going this story isn't over like and not right. not just in the sense that the story the movie is still going but in the sense that eli's not gone or at least not, like something's going to happen here because we can't leave Oscar to be, I mean, it's a brutal film, but I don't think it's a, such a brutal film that we're going to kill the young boy protagonist in the, in the epilogue. Like it feels weird. That would feel a little weird. So I guess my movie brain, I couldn't shut off was telling me that something was going to happen, but you're right. And that the way Alfredson stages it, like we don't get any intimation that Ely is going to show it up until that shot underwater happens like all we get is the bullies and a little bit i think we get a little bit of oscar's pov of like sort of looking up through the distorted water and not being able to move but to me that's like the capstone to the i hesitate to and i hesitate to call a horror movie this bloody and depraved a fantasy film but it's a film about a fantasy uh-huh. um it, no i i know what you mean there's specifically like a room a romance fantasy. And- I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little masturbatory here and say and and I want to read you my last sentence from my review from back in 2008, which I still think no, I look I back at it. I'm like it's I'm like been 15 years. You that's a good summary. Yeah, no. go ahead. So it taken mount take into account that I'm that it's 15 years ago. My writing was, was rather this final scene serves as an exultant and perfectly natural flourish to an all too familiar fantasy, whether we are 12 years old or not the dream of a companion who will accept us, adore us and above all save us. Like that's why to me, that's why that's why it works so well. Is that, that why it makes your heart swell? Because it's not, you're not watching. You're not horrified. That these bullies are getting their comeuppance. It's a very Stephen King moment in some way, right? Like the, the, the yeah. monster killing the, very deserving bullies it's the sensation that oh it's not just that oscar's being saved thank goodness who it's that ely came ely back has been ely has been watching over oscar yeah they that came back realization yeah. it's like they've just been in the shadows mm-hmm. you know or is it's so beautiful because it's a, a bit of sacrifice because was that like was that Ely's plan all along was to just like take care of him from yeah. afar because they know they kind of can or you know was it like oh my spidey sense is tingly <laughs> yeah. we don't know but what it matters in the moment is that it establishes for Oscar and also viewers that yes Ely cares Ely, care- Ely loves us mm-hmm. in that moment that's what Oscar's thinking and that the Love is expressed through murdering and dismembering my enemies. 
Good. Yeah. Good. Get rid of them. <laughs> the bullies you know, are like the bullies are like cartoonishly evil, which I love. I actually I love so that scene. This, that's a, I feel like right that's a Stephen in. King touch, yeah. You feel like they're cartoonishly evil in Let the Right One In or Let Me In. Because <laughs> Let Me In, they're a little over the top. Yeah, they're, they're both. I think they're both, but I think Let Me In is maybe worse. I don't well, know. Let Me In sort of turns everything up a little bit. And even including the score, the Giacchino score, which is quite good. And it's it's like... But even like the injury that the bully receives from yeah. Oscar is more gruesome. Everything yeah. you're right. Everything gets turned up half a notch. And then there's all that CGI of Chloe Grace Moretz becoming like a super fast rat ravaging <laughs> whatever body. To whereas this this person just jumps with like some Ol- Olympic skill. <laughs> the other one looks like a Tasmanian Devil. I love the um, long. I get the wide shot we get. This is unrelated, but I love the wide shot we get. That guy chasing Ely and <laughs> she leaps over the fence. Yeah. And it's just kinda, he just kind of like slows down. He's like, what did I just see? <laughs> there's several tricks that are like, okay, so the CGI cats fail. The animatronic cat fails. Mm-hmm. But there are other ways, more more practical ways. Or subtler. That CGI. they achieve some of some of these effects. Or yeah, not not as overt. Like when Ely finally feeds. Their face isn't as gaunt. There's a, their face is actually lighter and more full, and their eyes are enlarged just a bit, mm-hmm. and they turn blue. And there's actually at one point where you get a close up of their eyes, and you can see like a little bit of brown iris and bright blue surrounding it. I don't know parts of the eye. I don't remember that. There's but, a great there's a great shot too where they when they first go down to the basement to hang, to hang out. The, the lights are off and Oscar turns them on and Ely is in like in close up. Basically, Ely has walked into close up. We, we couldn't see them because the light has been pitch black. And for like half a beat, they have like cat's pupils, like thin slitted mm-hmm. pupils. And then they blink and they go away. And it's just a, it's a sub. I love that kind of subtle CGI touch way more than the than hordes of CGI cats. And there's a point where Ely like they're the two of them are embracing and we get a reverse shot of Ely and they have aged mm-hmm. and it's not very long and it's not necessarily subtle, but it does make you do a, like a, a double take. Like, well, did I just see that? Did that just happen? That is Suzanne Rubin playing that. So, you know, can we get back to just, a, a little bit of the the queer subtext or text, whatever it might be. Mm, yeah. And talk about the choice of it all. I found, I've got to pull up this writer's name. John Ajvide Lindqvist. Swedish no, people are probably going to murder me for that. <laughs> I found this to, to help us two cis men illuminate the trans ideas here. There's a Fangoria article written not just last year by a writer, Faye Basir, who is a trans woman, and talks about the different iterations of Let the Right One In and the representation of transness in each of them, and specifically the source material, how problematic it is. There's a 
more explicit b- backstory about male castration, mm-hmm. who she pr- points out that that is sort of a trope in transphobic media. There's also the fact that Oscar is um, rejects Ely whenever he finds out that Ely essentially comes out as trans and says, I'm not a girl. There's actually a rejection of it, which of course is also another trope of transphobic media, but also like a, a very real and terrible yeah. thing that happens Gay to panic, trans yeah. people all the time. So as far as representation, this is something that's more positive while still giving you a realistic point of view of what it would be, whether it's in subtext or text, to be in a queer relationship or to be a queer person and specifically to be a trans person. And then also dips into Let Me In. But if you that published on Fangoria, and I thought that was just, even though maybe it's not you know, it's not like this great piece of film criticism. It, 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 I think it comes from a, a deeply personal place and really just kind of fact by fact spelling out this is this is how you adapt mm-hmm. and this is how you do representation the right way, or at least giving someone a little bit of hope versus doing more stereotyping again and again and again. Can we also get into adaptation and talk about something we don't know anything about. Which is? This fucking TV show that happened. Oh, yeah. What? what? You, you mentioned this to me. And I'm like, this is the first time I am hearing. I think this has less to do with like marketing and our own awareness and just the fact that there is too much TV. There's too much TV. So we had no idea that there's a Showtime adaptation, a series adaptation starring Academy Award nominee Damien Bashir and Anika Nani Rose, who I remember from Dreamgirls. And it is canceled and gone. It is not available anywhere. I'm wondering if there are illegal leagues and I couldn't find it. I'm Someone sure there see. are. But because that's, but that's interesting. So that's, look a, that's emblematic. These- that's yeah, emblematic of our current era, right? That not yeah. only was there a show and a, a third adaptation of this that we'd never heard of, but now it's been erased from existence and we can't even watch it if we want to. Well, and we <laughs> know what's going on with that. It's probably the same stuff as with HBO and it's sort of right. a, a tax write-off. This thing was probably a little bit more expensive and maybe not many people watch it. But if you, if you Google let the right one in right now, a lot of the like people asked, is is the is the right let the right one in canceled? Is let the right one in coming back? So clearly somebody knew it, it existed. Somebody watched. Someone who watched uh, Showtime like in real time knew it existed. But yeah, listeners, if you watched it, let us know what you thought about it because I'm deeply interested in yet another adaptation on it. Right. From all uh, I looked at reviews, it seems to focus more on the Hakan character the father figure character mm. than um the younger people so yeah let us know that's at the take of a steal it's fascinating though that somebody like i'm sort of amazed that it actually got greenlit like it doesn't feel like an 
Like we're going to take this film that's that was a popular Swedish film, art house film that was remade and mildly successful in the United States. We're going to turn it into a whole series. But I don't know. Again, there's just too much TV. There was a whole Exorcist series that people that a lot of horror fans rave about and say was actually really excellent. I've never seen it. It was on Fox. It was yeah. on like just network TV primetime. Well, I don't have no. TV, so. You know, I, I ain't fucking with that. <laughs> but it's like, there's Hannibal. just too much TV. There's too much yeah. TV. Yeah, there's too much TV. But it, it is just odd. It, but it it's not odd. It makes sense. The sort of how this can become the springboard for all of these adaptations because it is so, it does feel so essential Mm -hmm. and sort of elemental and it's very basic the bones and the structure of it it makes sense that people would want to keep returning to it and see what variations and modulations they can make on it and how that will do there's something and, almost fairy tale like about the yeah. core about the nugget of that premise right yeah. the idea of a little boy falling in love with a vampire who he thinks <laughs> is the same age and who he must now murder for his entire yeah. life. So that's another thread that I don't know is in this. Like this is a father figure, but in Let Me In, it's explicit it that it's cyclical. Richard Jenkins plays the the father figure character, and you see a picture of Abby in that film with the younger version of Richard Jenkins, which you pointed out to me, you can tell it's the younger version because he's got like a birth, the same birthmark that Richard Jenkins has in the film. But you don't get that in this film. It's sort of, it's implied that they have some sort of parental relationship, but it does not play that way. The very first scene that you see between the two of them, Ely is like berating him for failing to murder for them right <laughs> because they fucking hungry and i get that i mean i think this is the the entire concept of the child vampire i think is always for good and for ill a fraught concept because whenever you introduce it it starts raising all kinds of questions about aging and sexuality and how our brains like it it, it, i think it touches on real world concerns about like how our brains are formed is ely and other child vampires who might be you know centuries old are do they have the brains of centuries old people or do they have the brains of children who just have been around for a century does experience and maturity work differently when you've been frozen in time and and like these are just fascinating concepts for our for vampire films in general one of the reasons that Let the Right One In is such a great film is because it doesn't hit us with any of that. It puts it out there for us to think about. Think about what the implications of this relationship are. Is there? Is it a master-slave relationship? Is it a father-daughter relationship? Is it a unrequited romantic. romantic sexual thing, which makes it, which brings up, you know, some really disturbing implications. But that are spelled out in the book. Yeah, the book is a little more explicit about that. The book I don't think is as successful as the film. I read it a long time ago. It's about 50, about around the same time the film came out. I was interested enough to pick it up and read it. And I, it's not it's not a bad book, but it it's way more digressive. It's more violent. It's more cruel. It isn't. I think one of the things that Alfredson does really well again is sort of laser. He saw that the the core of this film is that preteen longing 
for somebody who understands you, who who values you the way that you understand and value them. And he makes that the core of his film. He whittles away a lot of the, he carves away a lot of the fat off of like this original novel and makes it, I think a little, a leaner, a leaner story. There's a bit more, there's a lot more of event. There's, and this happens a lot with novel to film, but there's a lot more stuff that happens in the novel and that's sort of paired away down to its, its core idea, I think that works best. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that. You know, I am with, you know, too much, <laughs> too much. This could have been, you know, m- nowadays, this might have been a two and a half hour mill, and it would have been a lot worse, I think. You know, you you bring up this, the this philosophers call it the mind body problem mm-hmm. is is kind of a central tenet in in trans ideas and trans yeah. studies. And it, it does sort of give a logical extension to what we're calling text and subtext in this, depending on how you watch it and the experience that you have is, am I my mind? Am I my body? Am I my mind? Am I my experiences? There's it, certainly it, a cynical reading of this film, though, right? Where you look at it and you say that the whole, because the whole film is couched from Oscar's standpoint, we don't really get much about Ely's inner inner world or inner life but there's a few we get a little bit of their character but we don't get it yeah. there's a cynical viewpoint where you could say that there's a cyclical master slave you know familiar to use what we do in the shadows language <laughs> relationship here and that Ely is going to use oscar up for another 50 years and then discard him you think i mean that could be the case mm-hmm. and uh, that's what let me in says is the case but in this one there's a the dialogue that they have where it seems like Ely is about to propose that sort of thing, but then in the next line, um, talks about the kind of relationship that they can have. And so I was specifically paying attention to that because I, whether that's still an interesting idea that this person would have a, an excuse me vampiric romantic relationship with with a, a number of running fellas that just come in and out whenever they age out i'll bring a new one in and that might be the case leonardo dicaprio that just reset my mind that was so fucking funny oh my god sorry you think sorry. Ely's a part of the pussy posse or not? no ely it doesn't it's so. not comparable so ely, it, it's not comparable ely keeps those guys around for way too long yeah, yeah, she you're lets right. them grow old. She lets them grow old. And even just like with holes in their faces. Oh. Yeah. The no, but I'm glad you brought up I'm glad you, you you quoted that article. And I do think it's important, you know, here here we are two again, two cis guys pontificating about transness in a vampire film. I do think it's important to read trans critics. This is something that I've had to sort of adjust myself to over the last 10 years. It's made me like Whenever I see a film with trans, a new film or an old film with trans themes, it does sort of make me Google out trans critics on blank. Like I, I want to read trans critics on these issues. I want to read queer and critics on these queer films yeah, because I feel like they give a, they give community. always give a perspective. Yeah, that that you know when when Sound of Metal came out a couple of years ago, I found I deliberately sought out and found uh, a deaf. A whole holy deaf critic who wrote about it and and generally positive about it. But I think like that kind of thing feels important. Like it feels like due diligence. If you're going to read criticism and you're going to read criticism 
mindfully, then you have to, when you, when you hit films that touch on themes or communities, you need to reach out and read those kind of critics. And it's been valuable. I've reading trans critics on Dress to Kill and Silence, Kill. Silence of the Lambs has been a Willow good. McKay on Dress to Kill. Yeah. Is is such an important read. Well, I mentioned Liz earlier. Liz Purcell did a great podcast episode with Bloody Disgusting on Dress to Kill and the trans ideas in that. Liz can get a little bit more down in the dirt, which I, I love about her and her recommendations. And but all that's of part of the charm, guys. right? Like they're yeah. even even within whatever queer critics, trans but, critics, within any with any subgroup, there's always going to be a diversity opinion. You know, I've read trans critics who hate dress to kill. I've read trans critics who love dress to kill. Like it, it, yeah. it, it runs the gamut, but it's just important to read. It's important to hear different voices on that kind of thing. But th this is a, what you've said is an even bigger idea too. Yeah. And that trust people's experiences. Yeah. Trust what they are telling you. If they are telling you that you using a word is recalling trauma <laughs> for them don't use the fucking word don't be an asshole listen and george carlin rules people don't be an asshole yeah. right sorry <laughs> no it's it's a helpful reminder to our to our listeners and everybody else in the world right Just listen and dress don't be, don't take be it asshole. in learn people are there to teach you all right any other notes on our one of our favorite films that we've covered i think yeah yeah watch it I'm going to, I mean, rewatching it, it's one of those situations where I sort of was maybe a little leery to revisit it. It's been at least 10 years since I'd last seen it. Yeah. And I was, I'm always really pleased when I pop something in and I'm like, is this as good as I remember? Oh yeah, this is fucking yeah. good as I remember. Yes. Oh, let always me a pleasant, it's always a pleasant experience when you have that sensation. Can I give a weird note? Oh, okay. A weird note. Okay. So when this film was first released on home media, it was released with a different set of subtitles that are a much poorer translation, from what I understand, than, than that was shown theatrically. Mm. So it was released here in the States, distributed by Magnolia and their sub-distributor, which was specializing in genre films, called Magnet. Again, with English subtitles, English narrative subtitles. I don't know what that means. English SDH, which is the, the the like descriptive subtitles, and English theatrical subtitles, oh. as well as an English dub. Well, so the, folks, the Blu-ray I have is 2009. So maybe I have the crap version. Go into the subtitles if you got four options, and all of those options, you got the right one. You got okay. the right one in. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. Let's let the right one in. Yeah. Good movie. So on our next episode, we're going to have Jessica Scott. Yeah, and, and you know, Andrew, the thing that popped into my head is she like speak academically about queer. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about <laughs> when Jessica Scott of We Who Walk Here returns. She was on our you are not alone episode from the gems of 22 can you believe we're almost to the gems of 23 yeah we're, we're almost, almost on there. two years with this podcast if you can believe that. we're almost at 50 episodes too yeah mm -hmm. anyway sorry jessica scott's gonna come back and she's got a couple ideas a couple ideas i think we might go even further back 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 in time 
Yeah, let's do some classics. Hey, here we go. All right, one more thing. Every episode we end with one more thing. That's something we've been thinking about, talking about, listening about since our previous episode. Andrew, you got to go first because I forgot I do. what my thing is. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Well, I've been doing some like deep film shot by shot analysis for a project lately. And I was just talking to somebody about coincidentally about The Shining recently, of course, because when am I not talking about The Shining? And was saying that directed them to a website that I really love. So I thought I'd mention this website because it's it's been an incredible resource. It's called Idilipus Press. I-D-Y-L-L-O-P-U-S. It's not really a press. It's just sort of a, a name given to a film blog by the author slash artist, Julie Keem. Kearns? Kearns. Kearns. It's a film blog by Julie Kearns. It's been around forever. But they write these ag- agonizingly exhaustive shot-by-shot analyses of films, mostly Kubrick films. They have some Antonioni in there as well. I think she's done most of Kubrick's phonography, not everything. I don't think Paths of Glory is in there, a couple others. But, and when I say exhaustive, I mean each of these analyses could be a dissertation length, book length thing in and of itself. And I've, I have found it an incredible resource to look up individual shots, individual moments in Kubrick films. There's a lot of sort of description to give us a, to help you understand what you're seeing on screen, but there's also a lot of exegesis that talks about how these, all these very sort of coded things that are in every shot of Kubrick's films. If you're a Kubrick fan, you ab- this is absolutely like mandatory online reading in my book. Hold on. I'm, I'm so on this website. Like you said that and I'm like, let me in. You know, the Alamo Draft House has done a complete Kubrick, Kubrick, retrospective even though in st louis we didn't get the first two or lolita or mr linden so whatever not complete however i did have the chance to see two of my very favorite films and my two favorite films by kubrick Mm. back to back Mm -hmm. uh over two days really eyes wide shut on the big screen for the very first time you didn't see it Uh, in run. say it again you didn't see it in its original run. I guess you'd have been No, I was uh, I was 13. My mom <laughs> my mama would not let me watch that movie until I think it was the year 2001. And I was a dying to watch it. And I think she eventually figured out that I wasn't just some little pervert. I mean I was, but that I just loved movies so much and really was dying to watch stanley kubrick's last film she's like all right watch it because i could watch anything else it was just so notorious for how fucking disgusting it was it It really isn't morally (laughs) disgusting not uh, graphically and so so you watch shining the shining Shining. and the shining was the latest like 4k rescan recoloring that's available on the 4k disc and they had it on the big, big show, which is their big screen. Blissed out, smiling <laughs> ear to ear for both movies. I was cackling during Ice Wide Shut. <laughs> if you men only knew. 
Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut is an annual watch for me now. It's my New Year's I Eve. Noticed. I watch. You... I watch it on New Year's Eve now. Mm-hmm. It's a very. It is one of the perfect. Chris... They're both great Christmas movies to me. <laughs> um. Anyway, <laughs> to quote her, the most important thing which must be kept in mind with Kubrick's films is there is the surface or principal story and then the internal or substory. In many of his films, if we're really paying attention, set elements pretty much immediately destroy the surface naturalism. One may not notice the deconstruction the first, second, third time one watches the film. Through constructive disorientation, disconnectedness, and sleight of hand as to where our eye focuses, Kubrick, the magician, intentionally obfuscates and reveals these elements that betray the overt naturalistic storyline as being artifice. This is your jam, right? I knew you would like this site. And I do recommend it for scholars too and just anybody. I have personally read the entire Clockwork Orange, Shining, and Eyes Wide Shut narratives like like their books. I just sat down and freaking read them in a day. They're that good. and But it's also useful for research purposes. I, I gave a talk on Clockwork Orange a few years ago, and I was specifically going back to this and trying to find, to get information about locations. Because she does she does talk about like when things are on sets or filmed on location. She talks about like how this was filmed. So there's a lot of like technical filmmaking nitty gritty in addition to nerdy film theory stuff as well. So just an incredible Kubrick resource. And also she's got some stuff on Blow Up and a few other films as well. So it's not just Kubrick, but it's it's mainly, I mainly view it as like a Kubrick resource. It's got, she does Twin Peaks, The Return is on there as well. The entirety of it. Is she Stop seeing anybody? I don't know who this person is. I don't know if she's a professor or what. I've never been able to find much information. She's going to get on this podcast. <laughs> going to be like, I don't know who you are. Please leave me alone. Yes, I'll do your podcast. <laughs> Anyway, no, she's got a lot of great stuff in here. I am so excited. And just that bit that I read out. Yeah. Yes. That I knew hey. when I, I knew when you as you were reading it, I'm like, oh, this is catnip for Josh. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at AYAT76. I'm also on Insta, Blue Sky, a few other places. Yesterday, I finally sat down and listened to Lana Del Rey's latest album, Did You Know There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? Immediately texted Kayla, those of you who who know <laughs> Kayla. Kayla's a big fan. I think she's more of a Swifty and then a, maybe a, I don't know what the Lana Del Rayers call themselves. Maybe like Virginia Slims. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I am a Virginia Slim as well. Even though I, I came to her after, I mean, I came to her during video games and then had the the critical reaction that a lot of people did. And like, oh, she's an industry plant. She made a good song. This album kind of sucks. And then like all these kids loved her for like 10 years. And I came back with Norman fucking Rockwell, which is like one of the great records ever. Something that I listened to. It, it got me through the pandemic, even though... <laughs> It doesn't seem like it would get you through anything. Anyway, did you know there's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard is another great record, more informed by gospel and soul, but also sort of with a, a little tongue in cheek from Miss Del Rey. I think she's just fucking genius. Love me until
yes, it came out a few months ago. And the reason I'm, I am just now coming to it is it is almost 80 minutes long. And I know I sound like an old person and like I get that they need the Spotify streams and the money and blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of like, there's a few interstitials on here that are filler and, <laughs> you know, it's like all the all the very some popular John Lennon, records. Some John Lennon noodling in there. There's some noodling, but I texted Kayla and I said, finally listening to it. Why is it so long? And she said, it should be longer. And I'm like, (laughs) I know, I know. I don't know what I would cut, but. That's the Roger Ebert principle as applies to music, right? Like no, no album, no good album is is long enough. and No bad album is short enough. (laughs) You know, that's a great sentence. (laughs) I don't know that that's true, but. I just want it real quick. Did you know that there was a 1969 German television adaptation of the um, source material for Eyes Wide Shut? There was a television adaptation made in 1968 starring the guy from Peeping Tom. Did you know that? No, I never I never heard this. I thought I switched up was the first, the first time it had ever been adapted. I sitting there, you know, the Alamo, they always have like their pre-reel, their pre-show. They showed a scene. It's Austrian, with, isn't it? Or is it Czech? The original novel. The original novel is Austrian, but this Austrian. adaptation is German. Mm. They showed the the quote unquote orgy scene from this adaptation and sharing the same name, Tromneville. And I was like, well, that's beat for beat. What the fuck is that? And it is, I've never read Trom Novelle, mm-hmm. but if, unless Kubrick took a lot from this adaptation, they're both seem very faithful to this source material and that there's a version of Eyes Wide Shut out there that is like this kind of staid, stately German television, but also <laughs> still about psychosexual obsession and like... <laughs> the minutiae of the upper class yes it revealed to me that just feels, like feels like bizarro universe uh, eyes wide shut eyes wide shut is out there somewhere we need to watch a film that i have seen countless times that i was sitting in that theater last week and was like you know just saying the lines with the movie like i was watching pretty in pink or something <laughs> I, I, it was so odd to see that so you know, you can watch it on YouTube or me if you have other resources. You <laughs> or you can hit me up. I don't, I don't know, it might be other. But it's unavailable anywhere. So good luck finding it, folks. <laughs> but it, it just revealed to me how essential Eyes Wide Shut is, at least <laughs> in my mind. But I'm Joshua Ray. You can find my reviews on KMOV. You can find some writing on the takeup.com. That's the take up.com. You can find all of us on social media at the Take Up STL. All right. So, like I said, next episode, we're going to have Jessica Scott of We Who Walk here back on the podcast for her pick in the Queer Coded series. That is super exciting. Then we'll have another guest. We're just chock full of guests. So, in the meantime, <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Kayla McCullough, our social media manager. Jessica Pierce, our editor, our friends at Cinema St. Louis. They are at cinemastlouis.org. Our theme music is by AMP. 
And yeah, so until next time, let the right one in, I guess. Did you, there's more stuff about like the kind of gross gender stuff in the book. Like the book's title, the word right takes a masculine, like the Swedish masculine form of right, mm. but they changed it for the film. It's like, you, like, Alfredson and his team actually know what they're working with. <laughs> they look at this and they're like, oh, mm, can we make this less, slightly less problematic? Bye-bye.